All right, if you want to be turning over to Philippians chapter number 1, and uh, I'm, I'm playing on a fair playing field. I didn't even have it open in my Bible yet. So we're both going there and heading there at the same time. Philippians chapter number 1. And uh, I'll give you a short overview of what our lesson is going, or what our series is going to look like. Now, you have the expanded outline in front of you, and um, that goes into great detail, verse by verse, and that's the outline that we're going to be following. But to give you an idea of, of, of basic division of the book of Philippians, it sort of divides itself into three different sections. Chapter number one details to us Paul's triumphant experiences. And then chapter number two uh, details to us Paul's tremendous examples. He points to several people, beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he uses them as examples uh, unto us that we might be able to observe their behavior and emulate it and uh, see the, the life of Christ lived out through us. And then chapters three and four together comprise the last portion. That's Paul's typical exhortations. And there's a lot of Pauline language and Pauline thoughts uh, once you get into chapter number three. And some of the great paramount passages of Scripture, really, in the Word of God, some of my favorite ones about knowing Him and the uh, fellowship of His sufferings, the power of His resurrection, being made conformable unto His death. I mean, just some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passages of Scripture that I'm excited to jump into and get into. Our goal tonight is to try to get through the first 11 verses of the first chapter of the book of Philippians. And as we said, you've got your notes right there in front of you. I would remind you that the book of Philippians is a prison epistle. Uh, the little community of Philippi featured prominently in two ways in Scripture. One, through Paul's initial visit there in Acts chapter number 16. This was the first westward thrust of the gospel. Uh, in fact, many would say that the Macedonian call that drew Paul into uh, the land of Macedonia and into the city of Philippi was the hinge upon which the history of the gospel swung. Paul had a desire to go east, but the Holy Ghost said go west. Now, I believe the Lord loves the people to the east just like He loves the people to the west. But let me just say, and I guess I'm a little biased here, I'm awful thankful it went west. <laughs> I wouldn't be here probably, most likely, uh, were it not for that Macedonian call. And the chances of you being here tonight are probably pretty slim were it not for that Macedonian call. I mean, literally the gospel could have, have launched forth in two different directions. By the wisdom and providence of God, it went westward into Europe, and history has been forever, forever changed as a result of it. I don't believe that... I don't believe that Europeans accepted the gospel, or we might say I don't believe that Western civilization accepted the gospel because they were European or because they were Western. I believe they are what we have come to know as Western civilization, defined by Judeo-Christian principles, defined by uh, individual liberty, defined by a standard of living far superlative to anything that anyone's experienced throughout human history. I believe all those things are fruits of the fact that they responded to the gospel. In other words, I don't believe there's anything inherently better uh, about me as opposed to someone from the Far East. I believe the thing that made the difference both in our culture, in our country, in our civilization, and in my life personally has been the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, where would we have been had not Paul heard and answered a Macedonian call and gone over into the city of Philippi? So this is an important moment in Scripture, Acts chapter number 16. And then, of course, the city of Philippi features prominently again 
uh, in the book of Philippians when he is writing. Many years later, he's writing to these believers that he had won to the Lord and, and others that they had won to the Lord. And he is encouraging them in their walk with Christ. I want to begin. Let me read some of this introduction material to you. And this hopefully will give you a little bit of a context and a framework whereby we can move forward. Philippi was a Macedonian hill town overlooking the coastal plain and the bay at Neapolis. The old Thracian settlement had been fortified by Philip II of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, to commemorate the addition of a new province to his kingdom and to protect the frontier against the Thracian highlanders. The plains of Philippi were famous in Paul's day. This is significant. They were famous in Paul's day as the site where the armies of Antony and Octavian, who later became the emperor Augustus, you remember when Christ was uh, birthed into this world, when he was incarnated, that there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus. Before he was known as Augustus, he was Octavian. And him and Antony uh, led armies. They had met and mastered the armies of Cassius and Brutus. Uh, you may know the, the name Brutus, Et tu Brutus, Et tu Brute. Uh, they were the conspirators behind the assassination of Julius Caesar. And they sought to wrestle power away and, and, uh, and governance away uh, from the Caesars, from the, the families that uh, had royal claim, and instead fortify uh, the Roman Republic. And there was a battle that took place to decide the fate of Rome, what was going to take place. And that happened at the city in the plains of Philippi. There the Roman Republic breathed its last gasp and gave way to the age of Caesars about 42 B.C. Augustus made Philippi a Roman colony, one of those bastions of the Roman way of life that were scattered across the empire. Like the Roman roads, the colonies were part of the system of fortifications securing the empire against insurgents and invaders. All of the colonies bore the unmistakable stamp of Rome. Paul arrived in Philippi fresh from Troas, where he had just seen a vision of a man from Macedonia, urging him to, quote, come over and help us. Paul's thoughts had at once turned to Europe's wretched paganism. None of the gods of Greek mythology, Rome's pantheon, Asiatic cults, or Egyptian superstitions was worthy of man's serious thought, let alone his worship. Their stories were often cloaked in impressive imagery, and especially among the Greeks, garbed in the beauty of poetry and art. But the gods of paganism were demons. They left man powerless against his passions and only amused him while they helped him to be unholy. Paul was sure that he had received an unequivocal call from God. The apostles' momentous vision was one of those mysterious turning points of history. The future of mankind was changed forever. From Troas to Neapolis, the port of Philippi, was 125 miles. Paul, accompanied by Silas, Timothy, and Luke, had made the journey in two days with an overnight stop at the harbor at Samothrace. When Then Paul stepped ashore at Neapolis. The east was behind him and the west was before him. The triumphs of his past 15 years were great enough, to be sure, but they were nothing compared to his prospects. Behind Paul lay the Orient, with its commercial wealth, great cities, libraries, renowned temples, and decay. Before him lay Athens, feasting of the glories of its past, and Rome, the dynamic ruler of the world. Nine miles from the port was the town of Philippi, which Luke, some think with local pride as a native of the place, called a chief city. The missionaries journeyed there on foot and were treated to a tremendous view of mountain, sea, and plain. The Via Ignatia ran, which is a Roman road, ran straight from Neapolis to Mount Symbolum and rounded the west side of the hill and headed straight to Philippi and ran the length of the old forum to the center of the town. 
An Acropolis, the old city, climbed a hill. Its streets were steep, its houses old, its temples visible for miles. The colony of Augustus spread out on the flatland at the foot of the hill was very Roman, very proud, and very full of Roman soldiers and retired veterans. Think about this next phrase. By the time Paul arrived in town, the grandchildren of the soldiers who had helped Octavian win the mastery of the worlds were middle-aged. That's greatly significant. At every turn, the missionaries were confronted with Rome. Roman houses, Roman officials, Roman soldiers, Roman togas, Roman speech, Roman merchants. There were few Asians, and uh, they were found only among the slaves, artisans, and poorer storekeepers. Together with the Greek population, the Asians belonged, for the most part, to depressed areas of the city. Military towns did not attract Jews until they became commercial centers, so there were hardly any Hebrews and hence no synagogue in Philippi. Paul's experiences in Philippi are recorded in Acts 16. First, he met a small group of devout women meeting by the river for prayer on the Sabbath. He told them the story of Jesus and met with instant success. His most prominent convert was Lydia, who apparently was not a Jewess, but a God-fearer. She was a native of Thyatira in Western Asian Minor, a city famous for its purple dyeing. Lydia, who sold purple fabrics in Philippi, seems to have been wealthy. She put her home at the disposal of Paul and his colleagues for the duration of their stay. Paul next encountered a demon-possessed slave girl whose owners made merchandise of her dreadful affliction and psychic abilities. Paul set the poor woman free from the demon possession and thus infuriated her owners. They say their gain, they saw their gains vanish and lost no time in stirring up the city against Paul and Silas. It was not difficult to foment the latent anti-Semitism always so near the surface in Gentile society. They hated, the hated missionaries were dragged before the magistrates. Faced with an angry mob, the authorities made short work of the case. Paul and Silas were beaten, thrust into stocks in the inner prison, and left in that cramping and painful position to reflect on this first public European reaction to the gospel. The missionaries' reaction was to sing. Then came the earthquake, the liberation of all the awestruck prisoners, their stunned inaction, the jailer's conclusion that they had fled, his attempted suicide, his astonishment upon discovering that all was well his midnight conversion, and his subsequent kind treatment of Paul and Silas. The next morning, word came from the authorities that the missionaries could be released. But for the sake of the new converts, Paul put the fear into the hearts of their unjust judges by announcing his and Silas's Roman citizenship and by challenging the magistrates to come and make amends. The magistrates pleaded with Paul and Silas to leave town, but the missionaries were in no hurry to go. They went first to the house of Lydia and had a farewell meeting with the believers. Then leaving Luke behind to do follow-up work and organize the church, the apostle and Silas and Timothy departed for further European conquest. The first western citadel had been taken by storm. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was a prisoner awaiting trial in Rome. The purpose of the letter was to thank his friends for their financial support and ask some of them to put aside their quarrels. It seems that when he wrote, he was expecting his case to come up before the tribunal to which he had appealed. Perhaps by this time his confinement was stricter than before, but it did not hamper Paul's victorious style of Christian living. Take note of this next sentence. The keynote of his letter is joy. Come what may, he was on the winning side. His prayer was that all God's people might catch the vision of a triumphant life in Christ. Now, it's greatly significant that this is a prison epistle. 
And yet I will tell you readily that if I was writing a prison epistle, if ever they throw me in jail and you're getting a letter from me, expect it to, to be me complaining, me griping, me talking about the food, me talking about how mean everybody is, me talking about, uh, you know, uh, whatever it might be. But Paul, as he's in prison, the keynotes are words like joy and contentment and fruitfulness and faithfulness. And it's a reminder to you and I, though we live right now in in ease and luxury and comfort and liberty, it's a reminder that our circumstances do not get to dictate our spiritual attitude. You and I decide by the help of God and by the grace of God how we're going to face and meet every day's challenges. Life doesn't get to decide. The Lord gets to decide how our attitude is. So this is a fascinating little book of the Bible. I hate to use the term little book. There are no little books, but it is a short book of the Bible, just four short chapters. But let's go ahead and dive into it. We'll begin in verse number one. And uh, I'll tell you what, let's just read the entirety of what we're going to cover tonight. It won't take very long to do. Uh, Verse number one, the book of Philippians opens this way. Paul and Timotheus... The servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. This portion of Scripture opens up with Paul's triumphant experiences. And first, as is always the case in Pauline epistles, he opens with salutations, with greetings, with some things that I think there is a great temptation to skip past. There is a great temptation to sometimes treat it as as what we would call boilerplate and not take the careful time to consider exactly what is said. Uh, Notice first with me the prisoner and his pen in these first eight verses. Paul begins to write some things to the church at Philippi that he wants them to know. You know, the written word is the medium through which God has expressed revelation to mankind. It's a significant thing when we take pen in hand. But all the more whenever the Holy Ghost puts a pen in the hand of a man and uses him under God-breathed inspiration to pin down Scripture. For it's not the words of Paul, it's the words of God that we're reading here. And so his pen and what he writes and what he wants to convey to them is of great important significance. Notice first off in the first two verses, he wants them to know that he was thinking of them. That they were on his heart, that they were on his mind. Uh, Notice uh, first off, uh, he's thinking about them ecclesiastically. In other words, he's thinking about them as a church body. He's thinking about them as individuals. The book of Philippians is one of the more personal Pauline epistles. Now, I mean, they all have their moments. 
uh, of, of being deeply personal and intimate. I mean, the, the angst that the book of Galatians is pinned with. You know, he talked about uh, how, you know, how large a letter I've written unto you with my own hand. And he talks about how he travailed uh, in, in, with them until Christ be formed in them. That's a personal thing. When you read the, the pastoral epistles, and particularly Second Timothy, and Paul is coming to the close of his race, and he's writing and exhorting this young preacher to take up the torch that he has carried and to continue walking for Christ, it's deeply personal. He writes to his own son in the faith. But you can just tell in the things that Paul writes here, and the things that the Holy Ghost puts here, you can tell that the relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi was almost entirely unstained by ill memory. He does not write this letter to straighten anybody out for the most part. There seems to be one small dispute that he addresses. We'll say a word about it. Even tonight we'll mention it. We'll get into further detail of it later. But it's very deep, personal. It's very intimate. It's very familiar. And you know what he's doing? He's writing to old friends of which he has dear and precious memories. And he thinks of them as this little church body. This little group of believers that were one to Christ in this first westward venture of the gospel. And he writes to them as an individual body. He first details who the letter was from. He says, Paul and Timotheus. He might say, well, preacher, what there is of any significance? They say, they say their names, they say they're the servants of Jesus Christ. But think about what that name must have meant to the people that read this letter. Think about the excitement. Think about the, the, the warm recollection that must have been felt. Think about how Lydia felt when she heard the name of Paul. And remembered when once she walked in, in, in sort of a half-darkness, when she feared God but did not know God. And she thought about that prayer meeting that Paul showed up to and that her life was forever changed by. Think about the demon-possessed girl that used to be led around by her masters, who, whose, whose fearsome bondage... Uh, by her masters was only surpassed by the bondage she felt by the demons that governed and ruled over her. But through Jesus Christ and through the ministry of Paul, she'd been made free. And now she dwelt in liberty and she dwelt in clarity of mind. Think when the jailer must have read that name. Think about how close he came to ending his own life. When you talk about somebody, you're talking about an 11th hour conversion. He had the sword to his heart when Paul cries out and says, do thyself no harm. Paul uses all manner of of greetings when he writes, but here it's sufficient just to say Paul, because they knew who Paul was. He had made an impact in their life. Notice not only his firm signature, but notice his fellow servant. He says Paul and Timotheus. Timothy's name is not always used in the full like this, Timotheus, but... Uh, Sometimes we know him as Timothy. They would have known who Timothy was. Because remember, Timothy was there when they went into Philippi. Timothy was an interesting individual, half Jew, half Gentile, but all Christian. God had saved him and radically changed his life. And undoubtedly, when Paul had to depart and had to minister and had to do things, uh, that Timothy had grown dear to these people as well. He was a precious friend too. But then notice, and I think this is of the most significance, notice his formal status. Now, here we find a deviation from Paul's normal uh, form. A lot of times he would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's not what he says here. Here he says, a servant, the servants of Jesus Christ. Dulos, a bond slave, a bond servant, someone that is owned by another. I think there are two things that are greatly significant here. I think one is the fact that this bespeaks that there was no great error uh, 
for which Paul had to invoke his apostle apostolic authority. Uh, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, man, they were a mess. And he had a lot straightened out. And there was going to be some hard language. And they need to be reminded that he was an apostle. When he wrote to the church at Galatia, they need to be reminded that he had divine authority from on high. That his gospel, he hadn't received from Jerusalem. He hadn't received it from Athens. He had received it from God himself. When he writes to the church at Philippi, he does not have to flex his apostolic muscle. He does not have to brandish his apostolic badge. It's enough for him to remind these people and how much of an impact it must have had as he sits with shackles on his feet, as he sits in a jail cell, uh, imprisoned against his own will, when he says, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. God help you and me, whatever our situation is, to be able to remind ourselves that at the end of the day, we are not our own. We're bought with a price. And our life is not ours. And we're merely the servants of Jesus Christ. I think he also is getting ready to encourage them to do some serving of God themselves. And I think he's wanting to remind them that if he's asking them to bear a yoke, it's nowhere near as heavy as a yoke as he is bearing. And that they are common laborers. Several times throughout the book of Philippians, he uses the conjuncted word fellow. Fellow prisoners, fellow laborers. In the gospel, and he's wanting to remind them that he may be asking them to give of themselves, to step out of themselves, to give sacrificially, to love sacrificially, but he's not asking for them to do anything that he himself is not doing. After all, they are fellow servants together. We see his formal status. And then notice who the letter was for. Uh, There's basically three things that are denoted here. Who is he writing to? Well, first off, he says, to all the saints. In Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Now, human religion has taken the word sane and made it into something that it's not. They've made it into an individual that has been venerated and elevated to a status above human and, and next to and near to God. And in some cases, co-equal with God. And you won't find that, that concept anywhere in Scripture. Even when the Bible talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, it said, Blessed art thou amongst women. Not above women, amongst women. The term saint, though, is a biblical term. It means someone that is holy and someone that is separated. He's wanting to remind these people that God has called them to a higher lifestyle and God has called them to a holy lifestyle. But then notice the the phrase, the name, the title that he uses for Jesus Christ. This is always greatly significant in the Pauline epistles. There are times it will say Christ Jesus. There are times it will say Jesus Christ. In fact, in the passage we're looking at, in verse 1, it says Christ Jesus. In verse 2, it says Jesus Christ. Now, nothing in your King James Bible is there by incident or accident or happenstance. And it's there exactly how it ought to be. So what is indeed the purpose behind it? Well, when we think about the, the title Christ, we think about Christ or the Lord Jesus in his exalted state. The term Christ is a term of honor. It means the Messiah, the anointed one, the enthroned one, the exalted one. When we see the name Jesus, we cannot help but think of his humanity. That was his human, his earthly name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so this order that is given, which we should always notice when the name Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is used, is greatly significant. He's just told the Philippian believers that they are elevated, exalted saints called to a higher calling. 
Then he reminds him that just as the Lord Jesus, though he was higher than anyone else, though he was exalted above anyone else, though he was preeminent above anyone and everyone else, though he was equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. He would go on in chapter 2 to tell him that uh, he took upon him the form of a servant. He is pointing to the high exalted state of Christ, but then to the willful condescension and humiliation of Christ, the humbling of Christ for the purpose of the will of God. And he's reminding the Philippian believers that they're going to have to do the very same thing. He says, with the who? With the bishops and deacons. So he's spoken about the Philippian saints, and then he points to the Philippian shepherds. Now, it's interesting, the word that is used here for bishops, episcopos, it's found also in Acts chapter number 20, verse 28. There it's presented to us with the word overseers. And Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he tells them to take care as overseers over the flock of God. He is using the language of a shepherd over sheep. And this, of course, is in keeping with Scripture. That's what a bishop or an elder is. We use the term pastor. And I I like the term pastor. People ask me all the time when we do a funeral, do you want to be uh, known as reverend? Uh, in the in the obituary, and I always tell them, if you knew me, you wouldn't even ask. You know, there ain't nothing reverend about me. Just call me preacher or pastor. That'll that'll suit me just fine. That that that's as high and honorable of a title uh, as I could ever ask for. Uh, but these two words are used. The, the words are not used interchangeably, but the ideas are. In fact, in Acts chapter number twenty, the same group of people that are called overseers or bishops are later on called. Elders in that same passage. So these words, uh, though they carry different connotations, they are synonymous concerning the same role or the same office in the church. And so he's talking to the pastors. He's talking to the shepherds. He's talking to the bishops, the elders, the people that are in positions of authority in the church at Philippi. One of the things that I think is worth noting is that he uses the term bishops and elders in the plural. He does not say that you have one bishop that's over multiple churches. Rather, he says you have one church that is ministered to by multiple bishops or elders, men that are pillars, people that are in positions of leadership in the church. This runs in contravention to a lot of of wrong human dogma, the idea of denominationalism, the idea of a denominational hierarchy where somebody rules and governs over a bunch of different churches. You won't find that. You won't find a scrap of that in your Bible. Instead, we find the opposite conveyed in this particular passage. And then he talks about the Philippian servants. He says, deacons. Deacons. It's actually interesting. This is the only time in Scripture that you'll find the word bishops and the word deacons being mentioned together. But a deacon is somebody that serves. Uh, Now, you know, and I I think that that sometimes there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You know, the old saying, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And I've known some deacons that thought a lot more of being a deacon than what the Bible teaches about being a deacon. But I have also known pastors that thought a lot less of deacons than what the Bible teaches about what deacons are and what they should do. It is true that deacons are there to wait tables. They're servants. They're there to handle the administrative and the everyday business of the church. That way the the pastor might be free to labor in the Word and might be free to labor in prayer and to minister to the people in a spiritual sense. But it's also true. The Bible says that if a person uh, uses the office of a deacon well, he purchases to himself great boldness. And that, you know, you go in the Bible, uh, the first time that deacons are ever mentioned, and I don't, I don't know that they're mentioned by that name, but in Acts chapter number 7, they set aside seven men to wait on tables. Of those seven men, two of them didn't remain deacons. One of them became the first martyr of the New Testament church, Stephen, and the other became the first missionary of the New Testament church, Philip. 
I guess what I'm saying is this, that it's true servants or deacon, uh, deacons or servants, but how dare we ever denigrate the role of a servant? Christ said, if you want to be first, be last. And if you want to be overall, then serve all. Labor and minister to all. So he's writing to these groups of people. So he's thinking about them ecclesiastically as a church body. But not only that, he's thinking about them evangelistically. In other words, he's wanting to inject into their spiritual walk spiritual truth. Notice verse number 2. He says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, in, in, this is some of that, what we would call boilerplate language. This was a common greeting from the Apostle Paul. But can I remind you that never did the Holy Ghost breathe a word onto scriptural page that was common. It's all there for a reason. Every single bit of it. This was a common greeting in the churches. You had a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles. Grace would be a common greeting to Gentiles. And of course, Jews would be greeted with peace. Shalom. Even to this day, Jews will often greet each other with the word shalom. But can I remind you that this church, though, it, it, was, it, it seemed to excel in almost every facet. There was one little blemish upon this church's testimony. There was two women in the church. And I... I I'm going to get to heaven, and she's going to fuss at me for how I'm going to pronounce her name, but I'm going to pronounce it the best way that I know how. Sintechi, or Sintechi, I don't know. You know, it's close to Italy. It could be Sintechi, or I don't know. But uh, in chapter number four, they're related to a Sintechi and, and a woman named Yodius. And these two women evidently had some conflict. She, she, the Apostle Paul beseeches them to be of one mind. He calls them out by name. And evidently that was part of what occasioned the writing of this letter, is there was some conflict between these two sisters in the church, and it was beginning to affect uh, the body of fellowship that they had one with another. How it must have stung their hearts. How it must have in love rebuked them when Paul said, Grace and peace be unto you. How could conflict ever exist in an environment governed by both grace and and peace. In fact, I'd propose this to you, that hostility is impossible. It's, it, the commencement of hostilities is impossible where there is grace. Where you're willing to bestow upon someone favor and they are undeserving of it, hostility is an impossible reality. By the same token, not only the commencement of hostility, but the continuation of hostility is an impossible uh, eventuality or end where there is peace. Peace, in fact, means that war is over. And I think this is just sort of, Paul is injecting, he is just sort of serving up a gentle word of counsel to these two ladies before he even ever addresses them. But the church of God is to be a place of grace and peace. Not a place of fussing and fighting. Not a place of, of, of fickleness. Not a place of my way or the highway. Not a place of I'm here for me and to serve me and it's all about things being done the way I want. But the church of the living God is to be a place of grace and peace. A place where the love of Christ is exercised freely through us to undeserving people and where the peace of an omniscient, omnipresent, uh, omnipotent God sitting upon the throne, the peace that that reality brings, reigns and governs over everything that we do. He speaks about this Grace and peace in his greeting to them. But then notice he speaks about the Godhead. He says, grace and peace, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he invokes two concepts that whenever Paul first walked into Philippi and began to win people to Christ, had undoubtedly been completely foreign to them. The idea of God as their Father. 
Pagan gods were never presented as benevolent, paternal, patient, loving, sacrificial. They were always petulant and lustful and greedy and violent. Paul had shown these believers at Philippi that the true God, the God that in Acts 17 when he pointed at Mars Hill and he said, this God, the unknown God, that's the one I preach. This God desires to be a father to those that believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And then the idea of the sonship of the believer, the, the, the child uh, relationship to, to God of the believer. Jesus Christ is the son of God, but he is also our joint heir. He has brought us into this family relationship. So we see in this passage that Paul relates that he was thinking about them. He wants them to know. And he will say explicitly that they are in his heart later on. He had them on his mind. But then he begins to detail how he is thankful for them. Verse number 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. What was he thankful for? We note a few things. One, he was thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. What does he mean by that? What does it mean for someone to have fellowship in a particular endeavor? Uh, We could probably very simply define it like this. It means to be in it with somebody. We're in this thing together. In this thing together. I'm beginning to learn deeply what this means as I watch UT football lately. Because... Saturday after Saturday, it would be so easy to buy Texas, you know, to take my Tennessee hat, draw Longhorns on it, put a little shoe polish on it. And, you know, we wouldn't be national championships, but we wouldn't be laughing stocks either. But I have to constantly be reminded that, hey, man, my, my blood runs orange. I, I'm Tennessee boy. I'm native born. Uh, for good or for ill, we're in this thing together. I mean, even even in the third quarter when they're still making their bonehead mistakes, we're in this thing together. To have fellowship in something means to be joined together in a particular endeavor. And what he says is that the church at Philippi is joined together, laboring with him in the gospel. He talks first off about how he ministered to them. He ministered to them, number one, by remembering them personally. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I'm sure there were some cold, dark, lonely nights in that prison cell when Paul was done great help by remembering that there were folks out there that loved him, that cared about it, that were praying for him. I know we've already finished Colossians earlier this year, and I'm not going to dive back into it, but I've always been astounded that the book of Colossians was ever even written. The two most unlikely books in the Bible to ever be written... Uh, In fact, I'll give you three. Are you ready? The first is probably the the book of Colossians. Because Paul had never met this group of believers before. He said, I desire to see you face to face. The second would be, and it's it's not a book that we have in our Bible. I guess I should clarify that. But the book of Colossians reveals to us that there was a Pauline letter that was written to the church at Laodicea. We never get access to that. We never are able to read that. makes you wonder if they ever got it in the little town of Laodicea. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 3, it sure doesn't seem as though they've heeded the apostles' advice. And the third would probably be the book of Jonah. Had Jonah not been as stubborn as a Baptist, the book of Jonah would have never been written. Instead, we would merely have God's grace upon the Ninevites. But, you know, when I think about the book of Colossians, all the people Paul could have written to, all the people that he knew, When you go through Paul's missionary journeys, there are churches that he planted that we have no Pauline epistle to. And presumably he he probably wrote to these people, but, but there are churches 
that when he corresponded with them, the Holy Ghost never, never put a pen in his hand, never breathed upon what was said. And yet he finds this little group of believers in Colossae, this little backwater town that's past its prime, that's broke down. And he finds out there's some people there that love God and are living for God. And he seeks those people out because they encourage him. In the same way, Paul says, you know, I often cast my memory back to the things that God did at Philippi, to the great door of utterance that was given, to the warm hospitality that I experienced, to the love that was shown towards us. It's interesting when he says, I thank my God. That word thanks, the first time it's used in your New Testament is when the Lord Jesus seats 5,000 people uh, besides women and children, just 5,000 men down, and he begins to feed them. And it says that he took the bread and he gave thanks and break. Paul uses the same word again in the book of Acts, chapter number 20, or chapter, let's see, let me find it here, in the book of Acts when he's uh, shipwrecked. So that'd be along about chapter number 28. When he's shipwrecked and he begins to break bread in the midst of all of the desperate and depressed and despondent sailors, he begins to break bread and give thanks. The same word that's used, in other words, in the breaking of daily bread, is the same word that Paul uses when he said, I'm thankful for the believers at Philippi. Paul was as thankful for these believers as he was for his daily nourishment. Paul was as thankful for those believers as the gratitude that was present in the heart of the 5,000 that were fed. Paul was as thankful for those believers as he was for the bread that was his very life when he was shipwrecked for weeks upon the Mediterranean Sea. I guess I'm saying this, it's important that we be thankful for the people God's put in our lives. And it's important we take time to just remind ourselves this world is an ugly, wicked place. People disappoint you, they betray you, they hurt you. But there are people in the world that God has given us that have shown love, compassion, and encouragement to us. Paul is remembering them personally, but not only that, he's remembering them prayerfully. He says, I remember you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. He was praying for the church at Philippi. You know, one of the greatest things you can do to minister to someone is pray for them. Pray for them. If we really believe prayer works, and I'm a firm believer in this, and it smites my own heart, that the degree to which we believe in prayer can be directly measured by our prayer life. How did Paul say he was praying? Well, first off, he was praying with persistence. He said, I'm praying always, always for you. I wanted to read this little quote to you because it was said so much better by the commentator than I would be able to say it. Paul remembered the Philippians in prayer with persistence. When we think of our own sporadic, fitful, intermittent prayer life, how Paul rebukes us. Paul told the Romans he prayed unceasingly for them. He told the Corinthians that he was always thanking God for them. He told the Ephesians that he never stopped thanking God for them. He told the Colossians he was making always told the Colossians he was always praying for them. He told the Thessalonians that he was always making mention of them in his prayers, and he was thanking God for them all the time. He told Timothy he prayed for him day and night. He told Philemon that he made mention of him always in his prayers. Satan might be permitted to prevent Paul from doing many things dear to his heart. Paul the prisoner could not pioneer new countries and continents with the gospel. He could not visit the many churches he had founded. He could not confront the Jews in their synagogues or the Athenians on Mars Hill. He could not preach with passion and persuasion from the pulpit. He could not lead teams of young men in itinerant evangelism and church planting. But Satan could not keep Paul from praying. And Paul, locked up in prison, 
and besieging the throne of grace day and night was far more dangerous to Satan than a free and active Paul cumbered about with much serving. Paul says, there ain't a lot I can do from this prison cell, but rest assured that I'm praying for you persistently. Not only with persistence, but with petitions. He said, I'm making requests for you. We have a theological term for that. It's intercessory prayer. Praying for things for other people. Praying for other people before the throne of God. You know, the fact of the matter is, some of us might not be saved today had it not been that somebody carried our name to God's throne. And you say, well, preacher, their prayers didn't save me. Well, no, that's absolutely true. But their prayers might have got you to church. Their prayers might have helped the preacher preach with power and with unction. Their prayers might have pulled the imps of hell off you long enough for you to hear and receive the gospel message. It's true their prayer did not save you, but it's equally true you might not be saved without their prayers. Circumstances of your salvation might have been greatly affected by praying mother, father, grandmother, or grandfather, sister, brother, child even, or even a neighbor, a Sunday school teacher, or a pastor. Paul said, I'm praying constantly And I'm asking God to do things in your life. Not only did he pray with persistence and petitions, but also with pleasure. He says with joy. He took joy in praying for the believers at Philippi. So that's how he ministered to them. Well, how did they minister to him? Look at verse number 5. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He thought back about the hospitality of Lydia the healing of the jailer, and the hope that the demon-possessed girl gave to him whenever she accepted the Lord. And he reminded himself that from day one, these people, though they may have been separated by great distances, these people in their place and him in his place, but both knit together in love for Christ and in laboring in the gospel, they both had had fellowship in the work and labor of God. Isn't it good as children of God to just be reminded we're not alone in this thing? We're not alone in this thing. I've known pastors and preachers out there that act like their church is the only one doing anything for God. Now listen, every, every crow ought to think their crow's the blackest. Every pastor ought to think he pastors the greatest church in the world. Every church member ought to think that they go to the greatest church in the world. And if they ought not, it, listen, if you don't think that, just don't tell nobody. Pretend otherwise. We ought to all love our own church and ought to have a special place. But there's great weakness. In, in operating under the delusion that the work of God rises and sits simply upon Wall Ridge Road or upon wherever your home church is. Fact is, man, we're not in this thing alone, and I'm glad we're not. If the only thing God was getting done in this world was what's getting done on Wall Ridge Road, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but there'd be more that should be done. I'm glad God's using people in different places. I'm glad I'm not in this thing alone. I'm glad I've got fellowship with other believers. Just knowing they're out there, knowing they're living for the Lord, is a great encouragement for me. Not only was he thankful for their fellowship in the gospel, but also their faithfulness in the gospel. Look at verse number 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was under no impression that the church at Philippi was going to give out or give up or give in and walk away from serving God. He speaks about the work that had been commenced in them. The term confident, it means to convince oneself of something. And it's almost as though Paul is saying, I've looked at the body of evidence and I can't help but believe that this thing is of God. This thing is of God. When he talks about a work being begun in them. The only other time that word is used in the New Testament is in the book of Galatians. When it talks about how we've begun in the Spirit. So when Paul uses that word, has the idea of the Spirit of God beginning a work 
in a person and in their life. And he says, I'm confident that God has begun this work in you. I'm confident that it's the real deal. I'm confident. I have looked at the body of evidence and I'm convinced that God is working in you. But he does not stop there. He talks about the work that would be completed in them in verse number 6. He says, a good work will, in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The term perform there has the idea of carrying something through to completion. Through and unto perfection. And he says, I'm confident that God's going to continue to work in your life until the day of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of days found in Scripture. Uh, you know, the book of 1 Corinthians describes this age as being the being man's day, the day of man, the day when man uh, tries to exercise supremacy over the earth and where humanism is pervasive in society. We're not living in the day of paganism in the sense of idolatry, of, of ancient paganism and idols. Now, there are places in the world still gripped in that darkness and bondage. But the thing that has dazzled humanity today has not been their enamorment with the sun or with, with you know crocodiles or with dung beetles. It's been their infatuation with self. This is in keeping with what the Bible describes in the book of Daniel. There'd be a great image set up. There'd be in the likeness of a man uh, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, fashioned the great idol. We are living in the day of man. The Bible also talks about the day of God. That's the day uh, whenever after the millennial reign and after that final conflict takes place uh, there in Revelation chapter number 20. After that, the ages that stretch on. That's the day when God uh, is able in his... Uh, how do I want to say this? When God is, well, I'll use scriptural language. When God is all in all. When we, as His creation, are living in a perfectly completed condition with Him. And when God is seated upon His throne and us dwelling and basking in His glory. And that day when there is no more night and it's just one long day. The Bible talks about the day of the Lord. That's a time of judgment that is connected to the tribulation period and the glorious appearing of Christ and the judgment of nations. But here Paul talks about the day of Jesus Christ. He'll use the same language again in verse number 10 when he'll call it the day of Christ. And this refers to the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ that will take place immediately after. And what he is saying is this, I'm convinced that God's not going to give up on you, that what God's doing in your life, that, that it is him that is doing it, that this thing is of God, and he's going to continue to minister and work in your life until you stand complete at the judgment seat of Christ, perfect. Isn't that what he had already taught in the book of Romans when he said that uh, those that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear son? God has set us on a course and he will, it'll be completed not on this side of the grave, but on the other side. It'll be completed not through our, our efforts, but through the rapture and through a glorified body. He's going to make us just like Jesus Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And God, uh, Paul says to the church at Philippi, God's not going to let you down. He's not going to turn back on you. He's not going to give up on you. Remember, this is a man in a prison cell saying this. Saying, I'm confident that this thing is of God and he will not let you down. He was thankful for their fearlessness in the gospel. Verse 7, he said, even as it is meet for me to think this. That means appropriate. It's appropriate. It's appropriate for me to think this of you all. Why? Because I have you in my heart. In other words, what he was saying is this. It's appropriate for me to think that God is going to continue on this path because God has knit our hearts together in love. God has yoked us together. God has given me a burden and a heart for you. Why had he done that? He says, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. You know one of the things he was thankful for? That they weren't ashamed of him. That they were not ashamed 
of his chains. It was not an easy or a safe thing to be a companion of the Apostle Paul in those days. Anybody that threatened uh, the uh, coming of a kingdom greater than Rome or of a king greater than Caesar was under threat of death. And eventually Nero did behead Paul. It would have been very easy for people to abandon him. And a lot of people did. He said at my first answer, no man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. It would have been very easy to walk away from the Apostle Paul. But the church at Philippi didn't. They said, you know, Paul, we're in this thing with you. Thick or thin, that's what real friendship, that's what real fellowship looks like. Not only that, they weren't afraid of his charge. He says the defense of the gospel. He says, I am set for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense means to state a case plainly. means to set something forth in no uncertain terms. And the word that is used for confirmation here means a guarantee. In other words, Paul viewed his life's work as being the setting forth of the proposal of the gospel and the guaranteeing of the power and promise of God concerning what the Lord said he would do. Uh, What a beautiful picture that is. Uh, uh, It's so divinely rudimentary to see our calling in life as being simply telling people how to get saved and promising them that God will save them if they'll come to him in the manner that he is Required. Paul said, you're not afraid of that. It'd be easy for you to walk away from it. Uh, the scripture does not say this to us, but secular history tells us that Paul very likely witnessed to Nero himself before he met the executioner's acts. Paul was committed to sharing the gospel and he found a group of people that were equally committed. Not only that, but he was thankful for their friendship in the gospel. Look at verse number eight. He says, for God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Almost every time in your Bible when the term bowels is used, figuratively speaking, it's talking about deep emotional experience or deep emotional feelings. It's talking about a gut level thing. I've I've explained it this way before, but if you want to know what that means, feeling of, of bowels, of deep emotional burning and and feeling. There's a crystals right out here on Clinton Highway. And if you'll go down there and get you a whole sack full and some of those junkyard fries, about 3 a.m., you're going to understand better than any Greek student ever did what the term bowels means. It means a deep, deep feeling. And what he is saying here is this, that God has given me a love deep inside for you all, and you all for me, an affection, an affinity one for another. He talks about love's outpouring. That the love of God was flowing from his heart to theirs. But then he talks about love's objective. You know what it made him want? He said, I long after you greatly. I want to be in your presence. Man, what a glorious thing it is to think that that's what heaven is. It's, it's the culmination. It's, it's the consummation. It's the realization of that great longing we have to be with those that know the Lord, that love the Lord, that love us. i got people in my life, man, I can't wait. I just lost one just two weeks ago. I can't wait to see him again. I long to be in His presence, Him in mind once again. I'm so thankful that heaven is going to heal all of those wounds. So we've looked at the prisoner and his pen. Let me take just a moment or two uh, and look at the prisoner and his prayers. Look at verse number 9 with me. Paul said, this I pray. So he's getting ready to express. He told him, I've been praying for these things. And he says, now this is what's on my prayer list right now. He wanted three things For the Philippians. Number one, he wanted them to be superlative in their devotion to Christ. 
He said, This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. He said, I want you to love without limit. I want you to open the floodgates of your heart, and I want you to love Christ with everything that you have. And I want you to love Christ, those that Christ loves with every bit of your being, every fiber of your being. It's hard, man. Being, and if you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably got hurt. I've been hurt. Uh, welcome to the club. It's the way it is. We get hurt. But the reality is this. It's too dangerous sometimes to close off our hearts. I remember one time, and I'm not necessarily a big C.S. Lewis fan, but I read a quote one time from C.S. Lewis that very often what happens when people get hurt is they take their love and they put it in a box, they put their heart in a box, and they lock it away in a casket and they nail it shut, and there it grows cold and calloused and dies. So often it is so easy when we've been hurt, be it in church, be it in relationships, families, uh, be it in friendships, betrayals we've experienced, whatever it is, it's so easy to build up that thick callus on our heart to shut the world out. Paul said, I want your love to abound more and more. I don't want you loving less, I want you loving more. But notice he says he wants them to love without limit, but he says he also wants them to love within limits. I wish I had a lot of time to stretch my legs on this and I don't. But suffice it to say that all true love, all biblical love, it it doesn't just involve limits. We might suggest that it is defined by limits. Not limit in the amount of love that we have, but limit in the expression and nature of that love. Not all love, or not all of what the world calls love, is holy. How did he say he wanted them to love? In knowledge and in all judgment. The word knowledge here means precise knowledge, information. In other words, he says, I don't want your love to just be merely based upon emotional appeal, but I want it to be grounded upon biblical truth. So often we struggle to love people because our love is based upon how we feel about them. I can tell you this, man, uh, and getting married teaches you this, and I love my wife more than anything in the world. But there's days you wake up and you don't feel a lot of love. There's days that things are hard. There's days that things don't go right. There's days that what, she woke up on that side of bed and you woke up in the backyard, you know. There's days that it's hard. And in those moments, you don't love based upon emotion or based upon feeling, but you love in truth and in deed. You love based not upon what you feel, but upon what you know. Paul says, I want your love to be more, more founded, more firm, more grounded than just emotional love. If the only people you love are the people you feel like loving, you're probably not going to love anybody but yourself, and even then at times you won't. Your love has to be grounded upon reality and upon what we know. But then he says all judgment. That means discernment. In other words, it means we love intelligently. We love intelligently. We express our love in a way that is beneficial for the person that we love. There's a lot of so-called love today that's not really love. You see parents that uh, parent their children in such ways that they say, well, it's out of love, but really what they're doing is more damaging to them than if they were to hit them in the head with a hammer. And they can call that love, and the world can call that love, but it's not love. It's not love according to all judgment. It's not a love according to discernment. Love's expressed by doing sacrificially that which is best for another human being, not by doing that which is convenient or that which is appealing or that which is accommodating. He wants them to be superlative in their devotion to Christ. Not only that, he wants them to be sound in their doctrine of Christ. Look at verse 10. He said that ye may approve things that are excellent. Excellent. I love what he says here. The word approve carries the idea of examining something or testing something. uh, Of looking at the, the measure and substance of something. And when he uses the term excellent, 
It means things that are different, but it doesn't only mean things that are different. I guess what I mean is this. It's speaking about things that are superlative in nature. Things that are unique and significant and are above other things. That's what excellent means. You know, if you were to say, man, Apollo's course was excellent. I'm using that as an example because I know there's no chance of anyone saying that. But if you were to say, man, Apollo's course was excellent tonight, what you'd be saying is, man, it excelled expectations. It excelled other things of experience. It was superlative to all other things. I think what he's saying here is that Christians ought to not just choose between good and bad, but ought to choose best. And when it comes to a matter of looking at things that differ, be it standards, be it doctrines, be it movements, whatever it might be, there's all kinds of decisions and differing things in life, would always make the choice, not just for that which is acceptable, but for that which is excellent. A wise man once said that the greatest enemy of the, good, of, of the best is the good. Good is not the enemy of bad, it's the enemy of best. When we choose good instead of choosing best, we've missed out on the will of God for our lives. We ought to demand doctrinal purity in our own personal uh, body of dogma and in where we go to church and in the things we say and the things that we read and the things that we listen to. We ought to choose not just something that's acceptable, but something that's excellent. He wanted them to be sound in their doctrine. Why did he want this? He said that she may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. He wanted them to be sincere in their demonstration of Christ. When he uses the term sincere here, this is interesting. It means something that is tested by sunlight. It also means something that is of unmixed nature, an unmixed substance. One of the commentators shared this, and I thought it was interesting, that in Paul's day... Sculptors would often, if they made a mistake in sculpting a statue and cut too deeply into the marble, they would often take wax and fill in that blemish. And when they sold it, the person would have no knowledge of it. That wax would look exactly like the rest of the marble, and they would buy it never knowing that there was a blemish in it. But when that statue would set out in the heat of the noonday sun, pretty soon that, that wax would melt away. And it would be proven that that sculpture was of a mixed substance. The heat of the day would prove that it wasn't what it pretended to be. Paul says, my prayer for you is that you be what you say you are and you be what God intends you to be. In their experience, he wanted them to be sincere and without offense. You know, there's two things I think Paul's basically warning against. You know, it's possible to be sincere and be wrong. It's also possible to be right and to be insincere. And I think too often we find society falling along those two different lines. Very often you'll hear people say things like this, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, that's false. We all know that's false. We all know that that's foolish. A man could walk to his medicine cabinet and pull out a bottle that is labeled aspirin, and he could pull out a couple pills and they look like aspirin, and he believed them to be aspirin. And he had every reason to think that that's a medicine that's going to help him and it's going to meet his physical needs. But if someone's placed rat poisoning in that and he eats the rat poisoning, his sincerity is not going to save him. It's not enough to be sincere, you have to be right. But then there are a great many people that are right, but they're insincere. It's called hypocrisy. They've got the right position, but they just don't exercise. Paul says, that's not how I want you to be. So I want you to be sincere and without offense. Till when? Till the day of Christ. I love the way the Holy Ghost rides through Paul. Because there's all these little... I, for lack of a better term, little jabs that he takes, little little hints, little little bitty things that 
that he just sort of injects in. Sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You know what he's doing? He's reminding them that one day everything's going to be brought into the light. One day we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have to give an account for the things we've done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. We're going to be tried by fire. Will it all be wood, hay, and stubble? Or will there be some gold, silver, and precious stones? He's reminding the Philippians that we are judged not just by our actions, but by our motives. Not just by our motives, but by our means. He's reminding them that we are called to be both sincere and without offense. Not only sincere in their demonstration of Christ in experience and in expectation, waiting for the appearance of Christ, but also in expression. Look at verse 11, I'll say a word and be done. It says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. I love that verse. It's so easy to read past it. The fruits of righteousness. You know, there are a great many moral people in society today that don't know God and don't have any relationship with God. I think it is a losing battle when we try to simplify a man's spiritual need to the matter of morality. One of the great claims of most atheism today is that a man can be moral without God. And you'll see sometimes when you see people debate back and forth, that's one of the great issues. Can you be moral without God? Very often the Christian will take the position that you cannot. And it doesn't ring true. You know why? This is not true. fact is, a man can be moral without God. There's all kinds of unsaved people that give to charity and that do sacrificial things and neighborly deeds and pay their bills and take care of their kids and love their family. And the atheist says you can be moral without God. He's right. But you can't be righteous without God. And it's not morality that is the measure of a man standing with God. It's righteousness. See, an unregenerate man may be good or moral, but they are not righteous. Righteousness differs from morality in both means and motive. This is what Christ meant when He said to the disciples that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The fact is, they couldn't walk a straighter path than the Pharisees could walk. It was not that it needed to be different in quantity. It was that it needed to be different in quality. And this verse conveys this beautifully. It conveys to us the means of righteousness. How do we do it? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. A man may be moral through his own energies, but he can only be righteous through the life of Christ. Righteousness does not come by striving. It comes by submitting and surrendering and allowing the Spirit of God to govern and dictate our actions and the life of Christ to be lived through us. That's what Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He'd go on to tell the church at Philippi down in chapter number 3 that when it came to uh, the works of the law, that he was righteous. When it came to the righteousness which is of the law, he was blameless. That he was zealous. That he persecuted the church. That he was an Hebrew of Hebrews of, of the tribe of Benjamin. An Israelite indeed. He was all of these things. And then you know what he said? He said, but all those things I counted done. They meant nothing. I counted them loss. Said, yea, doubtless not count all things but loss, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God by faith in Jesus Christ. An unregenerate man, he can be moral, but he cannot be righteous because righteousness comes from God. It comes from the life of Christ being lived through us. The means of our righteousness is by Jesus Christ. But then also, the lost man cannot be righteous because his his motives are wrong. He does the things he does because it benefits him. 
He gives to charity because it gives him a sense of, of self-satisfaction. Uh, he takes care of his family because his family pleases him. He pays his bills because he wants to keep the things that he has. And I'm not saying there aren't a lot of Christians that have those same motives. But only a Christian can do all things as unto the Lord. And do it not because of the benefit that we derive from it, but do it instead because it glorifies the Lord. Notice what it says. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. We live our lives not merely because it's beneficial to us to live in a certain way, but we live in the way that we do because it brings glory unto the Lord. And He is deserving of all praise, all glory, all honor. 